0: The sermon text is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This morning, we are going to consider the first seven verses of this chapter. And then next Sunday, we will look at verses 8 through 14. And then for Christmas Eve, uh, we will consider verses 15 through 21. This morning, we are looking specifically at the first 7 verses, Luke chapter 2, and this is what we read. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David tell a lot about a story by the way that the story begins. Um, One example is if I say to you, uh, once upon a time in a land far, far away, your brain, once you hear that phrase, it immediately switches because it knows that you're listening to a fairy tale. You know it's not a true story, but you know that, hey, there might be some kind of truth in what I'm hearing. Uh, Like we can learn some truth from uh, the story of Snow White, which is a fairy tale. And the truth of that might be uh, don't eat apples from shady ladies, right? That's a truth you could take away from the story of Snow White. But imagine if you're uh, sitting with your grandfather and he begins a story this way. And says, when I was fighting in the war in Vietnam, this is what happened to me. Once he begins that way, you know that he's not telling a fairy tale. He's not telling you a made-up story. He's telling you something that really happened in time, in history, in his own life. And you know, that's exactly how Luke begins the account of Jesus' birth. He begins with the timing of it. As we see in the first two verses of Luke chapter 2, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. He begins by locating the birth of Jesus at a certain moment in time, in history. And what we see is that as Luke records these events, he is writing Holy Scripture. This is a historical account of historical facts. And Luke, as we see, uses historical people to help us pinpoint the time of Jesus' birth. So as we consider these verses and the Scripture as a whole, we need to know that these are not just uh, timeless truths that We're reading. These are not just good moral lessons. You know, some people say that, you know, if Christianity uh, is not true, uh, if what we read in the Bible never actually happened, uh, you know, that's okay, they'll say, because, you know, at least we can learn some good things from it, right, some moral lessons from it all, like we can learn the same lessons from fairy tales and fables and myths, But friends, that idea is completely foreign to the scriptures, and especially to Luke. He wants us to see what really happened in time and history. He shows this clearly again at the beginning of his gospel, the very beginning of his gospel in Luke chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can just turn perhaps one page over. Luke chapter 1, the first four verses... Luke writes, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. And then he says in verse 3 you know, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have also decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of. Everything you were taught. Do you see how Luke begins his gospel? He, he begins as a historian. He's like an investigative reporter. He's a doctor, and he is telling us the historical account of Jesus' life and of Jesus' ministry. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and his goal and his aim is to provide this accurate, well-ordered account of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as he says. And Luke, in our passage this morning, what he is doing in this passage in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, is he is also, as we'll see, purposely showing us a contrast between two historical people. Uh, two people, namely Caesar in verse 1, and the Lord Jesus in verse 7. Because as we look again, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, who do we read about there? We read about Caesar. Augustus, right, who was the ruler of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire that stretched far and wide. And we see that Caesar decreed that a census should be taken, probably for uh, tax purposes because by knowing how many people were, were in his empire, he would know how much to charge in taxes. And so we read in verse 1 that he commands this registration and the census be taken And what we know about Caesar, Augustus, um, was that he was a man of such force, of such organizational abilities, and of such military might that he greatly expanded the size and the strength of the Roman Empire during his 41-year rule as emperor. Under his leadership, there was peace and prosperity in the Roman Empire, so much so that this Caesar achieved something like a divine status among his people. There's actually an inscription of him in an ancient Roman mausoleum that hails Caesar Augustus as the savior of the world. That's how uh, exalted he was uh, by his people. And So as we read verse 1 about this Caesar Augustus, who does it seem like is in charge of the situation right who seems to be calling the shots caesar right but down at the bottom if we look at verse 7 we read about jesus birth and who is jesus at this point he is a baby boy but as we consider what we read in luke chapter 1 we read that the angel gabriel told mary that this wasn't just any baby boy. He said specifically to Mary that this child, verse 32 Luke chapter 1, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, loved ones, while it seemed to all the world that caesar was in charge that caesar was calling the shots what we see instead is that caesar was simply being used by god to order events just as god wanted them because as a result of of caesar's decree of his edict as a result of of him desiring to consolidate his power and to take this census. A poor couple, Mary and Joseph, poor family, they were forced to make the long and difficult journey from their home, all to obey uh, Caesar's command. And all of this came about, Luke is showing us, according to God's plan and according to God's timing. It was all according to God's providence. It's exactly what the apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 through 5, a couple of verses that we have considered often even in our series through Philippians. Paul writes there that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law to be redeemed to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption As sons. What God is showing here through the scriptures, through the revelation, is that His timing is always perfect. That He is involved in all of the details of history. And if He is involved in all of the details of history, He is involved in all the details of our own lives. Loved ones, nothing happens by accident or outside of of what God wills. How are you and I supposed to feel about that? That nothing happens apart from what he has decreed. The Lord Jesus tells us how we are to feel about it. He says in Matthew chapter 10, not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. That's how much God is involved in the details of our lives. And Jesus says in verse 31, So don't be afraid. That's how we are to respond to this truth. Don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. See, friends, do you know how precious you are to God? The Lord Jesus tells us here, we are precious in his sight. We are valuable to him immensely. Think about the fact that the Lord Jesus gave his life for us. That we have been called into his family. That we are the children of God. And all of that guarantees that everything that happens in your life and my life is according to his good plan for us. And it all happens at just the right time as he has ordained it. We see that... Jesus here was born at the right time. And secondly, Jesus was born in the right place. Luke chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. That all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. You know, as we consider these verses, the question might come up why does it matter where Jesus was born? Why does Luke, the historian, uh, include this little detail of his uh, birthplace? Well, his birthplace is recorded specifically to show that the location was a fulfillment of prophecy. We read from Micah chapter 5 for our first reading. And in that chapter, Micah, the prophet, said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. I'm going to read Micah 5 verse 2 again. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. We see that Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was a fulfillment of prophecy about the Messiah. John Calvin writes that Jesus was born in Bethlehem to show in a miraculous way that what was happening was governed by the providence of God. This gives us a greater confirmation that this child was, in fact, the promised Christ. That this child was, in fact, the promised Messiah. Because I want you to consider this morning, loved ones, that you know when Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem that day, nearly 2,000 years ago, they didn't realize that what was about to occur, was in fulfillment of prophecy. They didn't go about trying to fulfill prophecy. It's not as though Joseph looked at Mary one day and said, Honey, you know, I see that you're pretty far along in your pregnancy. You know, you're huge, right? No, he would never say that to his wife. No wise man would ever say that to his wife. But, he, you know, honey, I see you're pretty far along uh, in your pregnancy. Uh, so I have an idea. Let's uh, leave home. Let's leave everything that's comfortable, everything that's safe. Let's leave our our close family and friends. And let's walk 90 miles to Bethlehem while you're pregnant. Uh, Because if we time it just right, uh, we might be able to fulfill this prophecy that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. That's not what Joseph said to Mary. In fact, Luke makes it very clear to us that Joseph and Mary had no intention of having the baby delivered in Bethlehem. They didn't know what to expect. Neither of them foresaw the prophecy would be fulfilled. They came to Bethlehem. Why? Because Caesar wanted this census. And this required Joseph, who belonged to the lineage of David, it required Joseph to return to Bethlehem because that was his ancestral home. So the families would get together, and it would be easier to list the families in the census, right? So Joseph came to Bethlehem simply to be counted among his family members. And what we see, loved ones, in the background is that all of this was under the guidance of God's providence in fulfillment of what the prophet Micah spoke over 700 years earlier. And I want us to... Just spend a few moments working through this verse in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, as we've noted how important this prophecy is. But as you look at verse 2 of Micah 5, notice that Micah points out here that Bethlehem, he says, was too little to be among the clans of Judah. Now, what Micah is referring to is the fact that when the cities of Judah were listed, in Joshua chapter 15, Bethlehem wasn't included because it was so small and so insignificant at the time. You know Bethlehem was like one of those small towns you drive through during a road trip, and you don 't even pay attention to the town because it's so small. You drive right through it. Um, I went on a road trip during college to Michigan with a friend of mine. Um, and one night we stopped to get dinner, in a small diner in a small town in Nebraska. You know, I don't even remember the name of the town. That's how insignificant it seemed and how obscure the place was. Well, over the course of dinner, I remember asking our server how to get back to Interstate Highway 80, right? Because uh, this is before Google Maps, uh, this is before smartphones. And, you know, I, I was doing the calculation of how long ago that was, and I was thinking, I was in college, didn't have smartphones. Wow, I'm getting old, right? Time is just flying by. But I asked her, how do we get back to Interstate Highway 80? And, uh, and I remember her response was, you take this road, and when you hit the stoplight, you turn right, and the highway is right there. And I said, uh, which stoplight? Uh, I, don't want, I don't want to miss the turn. And she said, there's only one stoplight in the whole town. You can't miss it, right? Well, that was Bethlehem in the time of Judah. It was, as we sang, "O little town of Bethlehem. And yet it was in this small town that King David was born. And it was in that same small town that King David's greater son was born. Look with me again at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This was the promise from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Notice this prophecy from Micah that God promises that he will cause a king to arise out of Bethlehem. Notice that God promises that he will accomplish this. This king... Shall come for me. There were some in Jesus' day who knew this prophecy from Micah. We read, for example, in John chapter 7, beginning of verse 40, about the different reactions that people had to Jesus' ministry. Some believed in him, some wanted to know more about him, and some just outright rejected him. But we read in John chapter 7, beginning of verse 40. The ironic part of what John points out here is that Jesus was, in fact, born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, but according to his birth, he fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Micah. And the prophecy continues, Micah 5, verse 2, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. So you see, loved ones, Micah's prophecy not only points to the location where the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but it also describes the Messiah's eternal nature. The phrase "there from of old" um, refers to events that happened in time long ago. The meaning that Micah is getting at is that the Messiah's advent was promised in time, in history through the many covenants that God had established with his people. These covenants were from of old. They were from the past. And each of the covenants, we know, revealed a little bit more about what the Messiah would be like, revealed a little bit more about what he would accomplish in his ministry. After Adam sinned in the garden, we learn that the Messiah would crush the head of Satan. And then in the covenant with Abraham, we learned that the Messiah would be a blessing to all the world, to all nations, not just to a particular race or a class of people. And then as we progress, we learned in the covenant with Moses, we learned that the Messiah would be a prophet, who would lead his people in truth. And then finally in the covenant with David, that he would be a king from David's line. And so Micah says, you know, This Messiah, his coming is from of old, from way, way back in world history. But then notice that Micah adds the phrase, from ancient of days, from ancient days. This expression can also be translated from days of eternity. What's Micah revealing here as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? What's he revealing to us? Well, Micah is revealing that the Messiah's coming was established before time, in eternity. He's referring to the covenant of redemption, right? Or the covenant of peace that we've talked about so frequently. That covenant between God the Father, as God the Father chose a people for salvation and promised them to God the Son, if the Son fulfilled what was necessary for their salvation. And then God the Son in that covenant in eternity, voluntarily, willingly agreeing to fulfill all of the conditions or requirements to save his people. And then God, the Holy Spirit, voluntarily also agreeing to apply the work of the Son to the elect. This is what Micah is pointing out. Not only was the Messiah's coming spoken of in history, in the past, but it stretches way back into eternity. Friends, doesn't this reveal the glorious grace of our God? That our salvation, you know, wasn't just some divine afterthought. As though God saw Adam sin in the garden and then thought, wow, you know, I-, I didn't see that coming. Time to go to plan B and, and figure something out. Uh, let's find a way out of this mess. That's not what the Bible teaches us. We see instead God's eternal decree being fulfilled just as he willed. Of his decree that stretches an eternity past, when he decreed to save us, and then the creation of the first man, Adam, the fall into sin, the revelation of a covenant of grace, that a Messiah would come to fulfill that covenant, and then of a, a Messiah who would come at a certain time, who would come at a certain place, would be born there, And would accomplish a a certain work. What we see in scripture, loved ones, is that he did it. Just as planned. Just as promised. What we can take from this is that when God says he will do something, he will keep his promise. His word is sure. You know, we're to take this example of his faithfulness. And we're to find comfort in it. Because we're to see as he's been faithful in the past, he remains faithful in the present and on through eternity. What has God promised you in Jesus Christ? He's promised you and he's promised me that he will be with us always. That he will never leave us nor forsake us. That he is coming again in the second advent. And we can be assured that that he will do these things because he is faithful and true to his word. Lastly, we see in our text from Luke 2 that Jesus was born in an ordinary way. Verses 6 through 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. You know, when I read these verses, I think that we have to appreciate Dr. Luke, how simply he describes Jesus' birth. It's totally ordinary. This might seem strange if we take into account how, as we noted, the scriptures were ramping up to this great event, how all of God's promises from eternity past and then, in time through the centuries we're all focused on this great event of the messiah's arrival and and even how the angel gabriel's announcement to mary was full of glory and wonder read in luke 1 the holy spirit mary will come upon you the power of the most high will overshadow you and the child to be born will be called holy the son of god centuries of anticipation among God's people, of longing for the Messiah. And the moment finally arrives and it's all pretty ordinary. It's the way we read it. Look how simply the birth is described in Luke chapter 2 verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You know, these Swaddling cloths were simple strips of linen that mothers used to keep their infants warm and bundled up. Wasn't anything fancy? It was just basic cloth. We might say these were generic diapers, right? Not the name brand diapers, right? Basic stuff. Jesus was placed in a manger. This was a feeding trough for animals. And why was the king of kings in a feeding trough for animals. Luke tells us, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, we might read that phrase and think immediately about something like a hotel with a no vacancy sign outside, perhaps like a mean innkeeper who rejects this holy family and tells them to sleep outside. Uh, But that's actually not what Luke is reporting here. One church historian notes that Luke was referring to a guest room in a house and not to an inn. And we know this because Luke has a different Greek word for inn, which he uses in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're very familiar with that parable. The Good Samaritan took the wounded man to an inn, and he even paid money to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend I will repay when I come back. But the word that Luke uses in the account of Jesus birth is not that word that he uses in the parable. He uses a room which uh, a word which describes a room, a simple guest room and it's the same word that he uses to describe the place where the disciples ate the last supper. Just a guest room of a house. And so It reads better like this, that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was not enough room for them in the guest room. You know, archaeology shows that houses in Bethlehem often had caves as the back of the house where they kept their livestock, and the livestock were kept close to the house so that they couldn't easily be stolen. And so the guest room that was attached to the house was usually small. It was usually in front of the house. The animal shelter was in the back. And so it seems that Joseph and Mary had arrived too late to find room in the guest room. And so the relatives did the best that they could by putting them in the back of the house. Joseph surely had relatives in Bethlehem. This was his It was also likely that when they saw that Mary was about to go into labor, that the family in the house perhaps asked or or put Mary in an already unclean spot in the house with the animals. Remember that according to the ceremonial laws in the Old Covenant, uh, women were considered ceremonially unclean. After giving birth, you could read all about that in Luke chapter twelve. But, loved ones, the the emphasis here in all of this is in the very human and very ordinary birth of the Lord Jesus. That his birth was no different from ours because he is like us in every way, yet without sin. Heinrich Bullinger he Wrote the second Helvetic Confession. It's a confession that was written in the 1500s. <clears throat> he explains it this way: the flesh of Christ, therefore, is not flesh and show only. He means, you know, Jesus was not simply pretending to be human. He was fully human. And he says, and it was not flesh brought from heaven. His humanity, Bullinger is getting at, was not some kind of superhumanity, right? But instead, Jesus took on our true human nature. And he concludes, rather, the flesh of Christ is our flesh. He became truly human, like us in every way. Loved ones, why is this important? We know that it's important, firstly, because Jesus' humanity enables him to exercise his representative obedience for you and for me. Right? He is the second Adam who obeyed and fulfilled the law. And secondly, he's made like us in every way so that he might be able to sympathize with all of our pains and miseries that we experience in this uh, fallen world. The Bible assures us that Christ is our high priest, as we study through the book of Hebrews, who is able to sympathize us because He knows what it's like to be human because He is our very flesh and blood. So loved ones, as we consider Christ's incarnation, God teaches us that we cannot solve our problems on our own, that we cannot save ourselves, we cannot cleanse ourselves of sin, we can't attain peace on our own, we can't find joy on our own. See, But in Christ, our truly human representative, our our sympathetic great high priest, God has accomplished all of these things for us. As one writer notes, and I used this quote several years ago, the writer says here, by faith when we think of Christ, we should see ourselves in him. As we look at the humble manger of his birth, we can say, this is my brother my flesh and blood. As he grows and matures and actively and perfectly obeys the law of God, we can say, this is my brother, my flesh and blood. As he goes to the cross and suffers and dies as our wrath-bearing substitute, we can say, this is my brother, my flesh and blood. When we see Christ seated At the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, we can say, this is my brother, my flesh and blood. And when we will see Christ return one day on the clouds of glory, we will say, this is my brother, my flesh and my blood. Loved ones, because of the incarnation, we as believers can say of Christ what Adam said of Eve. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So we look to Christ, our brother, our flesh and blood, who died for us and who is now at the right hand of God for us and who will return for us on the last day. All praise and all glory be to him. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and for revealing to us the way of salvation. Truly, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to accomplish what we never could and to redeem for himself a church, a bride, an eternal love. Lord, work this truth deep into our hearts and minds so that we might love as you love us, Forgive as we have been forgiven and serve as we have been served. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.